This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 27th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week we've published a couple of pieces that address both preventing COVID-19 and how to treat those already infected. Let's start with vaccination. We've talked in the past about how immunity might wane over time after vaccination. Today, we saw new data about the situation in Israel, where the BNT162B2 vaccine from Pfizer has been used almost exclusively. What did we learn? So, as you said, we've discussed it before, and it's a bit challenging to disentangle potential waning immunity because the Delta variant has become dominant. And it appears that Delta is more able to infect those who've been immunized. Israel, though, is a particularly good laboratory for asking this question because a large number of people were immunized early. So our ability to detect changes over time is increased by the increased sensitivity we get. The study here comes from the Israeli Ministry of Health, which has access to a very large database that includes the dates of vaccination, the results of PCR testing, and the severity of disease in those who do become infected. Their study period started on July 11th of 2021 and extended through the end of that month. That was a time when Delta had essentially replaced any other circulating strains. They excluded those who traveled abroad who might have been exposed to other viral strains. Since vaccination began last December and has been ongoing, they had a pretty good time span to study. However, the rollout of vaccines went first to older individuals and then extended progressively to those in younger age groups. So that means the most robust data are for those who are older and at higher risk of developing severe disease. This was mitigated somewhat by the fact that healthcare workers also got the vaccine earlier, regardless of their age. Altogether, the investigators included data on more than 5.7 million people, of whom 13,000 had a positive test for COVID-19, and more than 400 developed severe disease. In general, the longer time after completing vaccination, the higher the rate of positive tests. Importantly, the rates increased in all age groups and changed from month to month. Similarly, the rate of severe infection increased in those over 60 with increasing time, though the absolute rates of severe disease were pretty low. In fact, in the youngest age groups, the rates were too low to draw comparisons. So that raises an important question. Which of these numbers do we care about? The total number of infections or only the most severe infections? That is a good question. And I think it depends on what's important to you and a piece of information that we really don't know. Certainly, we want to prevent people from getting severely ill. We want to prevent hospitals from filling up. And of course, we want to prevent death. So severity of disease really matters. If the vaccine is an effective way of preventing the transmission of disease, then that would be very important because we could get to that all-important herd immunity, or at least even if we don't eliminate disease altogether, decrease the number of cases occurring in the community. But we really don't have a good sense of how well the vaccine can prevent transmission. In Israel, the hypothesis is that there is decreased transmission. They have made that statement after boosters when they saw a decline in the number of cases. But it's pretty hard to tell from ecological data because case rates go up and down for a number of reasons. So I think it's still an open question as to whether or not we are effectively preventing transmission. I agree, Eric. I think 
Steve, it's really important both to pay attention to the absolute risk of breakthrough as well as the relative risk. They tell us different things. And as you pointed out, the absolute numbers are still low, even though there's evidence of breakthrough infection, particularly in those who are further out from the primary vaccination series. But these data are complicated to understand, as we've discussed before, as those who are vaccinated earliest are not necessarily the same as those vaccinated a month or two later. Having said that, the evidence that there is breakthrough infection preferentially in this group, albeit milder illness in the vast majority of cases, is suggestive that there may be waning of vaccine-induced immunity, which may be complicated by the emergence of variants that in part may have been selected in the environment of vaccine deployment, creating an immunologic selection, perhaps. So I think there are a variety of factors we have to weigh. The boosting is a mild inconvenience for a potential enhancement of protection in the individual and the community. And as you point out, Eric, trying to block or curtail transmission is really important, but very difficult to rigorously study scientifically given the complexity of transmission dynamics. But lines of evidence suggesting that vaccination may decrease asymptomatic acquisition and in communities where vaccines have been heavily deployed, transmission has dramatically decreased, at least for a period of time, are some of the evidence that suggests that vaccines may impact transmission. But this does require more rigorous studies so we can understand the strengths and weaknesses of vaccines for this purpose, which has societal benefit but is complicated to deploy given some of the challenges of vaccine deployment in general. I agree, Lindsay. It is likely that these vaccines do decrease transmission, although, as you say, it's difficult to measure how much they decrease transmission. It turns out that they have all of these benefits simultaneously, though, so that there are good reasons to deploy vaccines. For an individual, it's much easier to make the argument, though, that they should get vaccinated or they should get a booster if there's clear individual benefit. And this study suggests that there is individual benefit on severity of disease, at least for higher risk groups. So it is an argument that one can present to someone considering vaccination. An element that we haven't properly assessed is the impact of timing of boosting on the quality of the immune response elicited. And there probably is some value in temporal delay between a primary series and a boosting series as to how it can enhance the immune response. That's not part of this work. But that's another parameter that hopefully data will emerge that'll help guide us on how to optimally elicit the strongest immune response as we understand how to deploy these vaccines. I'm just not sure that boosting early and often is necessarily the right answer. However, in settings where we're seeing breakthrough and in settings where we've defined how to bring out the strongest immune response, we may get a little bit smarter in how we deploy vaccine boosters. I agree entirely. I think that having boosters gives us an important tool, at least to protect 
the most vulnerable people around, but how best to use them on a community level remains a question. We've talked about monoclonal antibodies as both potential therapeutics and potentially for their role in preventing disease. This week, we published a study of a new agent, sotrovimab. How well did this work? Steve, the study we published is another study of the utility of monoclonal antibodies to prevent the progression of disease in high-risk individuals. This agent is a bit different from the other monoclonal antibodies, as rather than binding to the region of the spike protein that engages a cellular receptor, this antibody binds to a different region that's conserved across beta coronaviruses. The idea is that it might retain activity against a wide range of different viral variants. In vitro studies do show that the antibody is able to bind to the major variants of concern that are currently circulating. That makes it a much more useful agent as it might continue to be useful if and when there are further changes in the virus. The antibody was actually originally isolated from a patient, but has been further engineered to increase its half-life. The study here was a double-blind randomized controlled trial in which people with COVID-19 and a high risk of progression to severe disease were randomized to receive an intravenous infusion of either the monoclonal antibody or a placebo. The study was performed between August of 2020 and March of 2021, a period prior to the widespread circulation of the Delta variant. Participants needed to have had the onset of symptoms within five days of enrollment, have only mild to moderate symptoms, and have a positive PCR for COVID-19. The primary outcome was either hospitalization for more than 24 hours or death from any cause within 29 days. This was a report of a pre-specified interim analysis as the trial was stopped by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because of efficacy. The antibody and placebo groups each contained almost 300 patients. There were no particularly concerning safety signals. In the end, three patients in the Trovimab group and 21 patients in the placebo group reached the endpoint of hospitalization or death. Five patients ended up in the ICU and two of these were intubated with another declining intubation and subsequently dying. All five of these patients were in the placebo group. So once again, monoclonal antibodies do seem to work in this selected population, the population of those whose infection is caught very early. These observations raise important points to highlight. The timing of infection and the therapeutic window, as you pointed out, Eric, the monoclonal antibodies seem to have their best benefit when given early in illness, when there is lytic viral infection and therefore likely targeted activity of benefit. And that is a very important consideration as we think about deploying these therapies more broadly, being able to identify those who are early in their illness and with a higher probability of developing more severe illness. This monoclonal is attractive for another reason, which is binding to a different therapeutic target than other monoclonals. Therefore, one can imagine different combinations of monoclonals, like we have combinations of drugs, antibiotics, to be able to mitigate or minimize viral escape. So having more monoclonals that are highly active that can potentially be used together is attractive. In addition, I think that these studies, and we've seen many of them, Eric, where they're stopped early for efficacy by the Data Safety Monitoring Board. It is really challenging for the members of these committees as they evaluate data in real time 
and have to make determinations of when a threshold of efficacy is crossed that is so definitive. And there is enough information to judge the underlying safety in balance with the efficacy demonstrated. So I have a lot of respect for and appreciation of the members of these DSMBs who have to make these very difficult judgments in real time with very imperfect information. But when an important signal is seen, then it needs to be shared. Lindsay, DSMBs have a huge amount of responsibility toward the participants in the trial. They're there to protect the participants against possible risks and to protect them against a futile treatment or missing out on a very efficacious treatment. So they get a chance to see these data at interim time points. Now, unfortunately, we do see trials that are stopped too early where it's really hard to derive convincing information. And I think that DSMB members are helped by having pre-specified rules for stopping, which really helps not only ensure the safety of the participants, but ensure that their participation in the trial produces meaningful data. There's been some advocacy for monoclonal antibody treatment as an alternative to vaccination. How practical is that? There has been an idea out there that monoclonal antibodies might replace vaccines. And this is particularly appealing in some groups who really would like to decline vaccination. But I don't think that this is really a viable alternative at all. For one thing, vaccines are more effective than monoclonals. And to use monoclonals requires identifying people at an early stage infection, which can be quite difficult. In addition, these are injectable treatments and therefore they require a caregiver. And this only adds to the expense and the difficulty of logistics in their administration. Altogether, monoclonal antibodies cost thousands of dollars as opposed to vaccines, which cost tens of dollars. So I think that there's no comparison. This is not an alternative to vaccination. It's really an attempt to help those who are unable to mount a good response to vaccines. I certainly wouldn't consider this as a reasonable alternative to vaccination. Eric, I completely agree. I think it's a false choice to pit monoclonals versus vaccines. These are complementary modalities, which when used together can serve our communities best. Vaccines elicit a durable immune response. They increase the breadth of the immune response. As you said, they're convenient. You administer them once or twice or three times over a year or two. They're inexpensive. So they have many attractive features. Monoclonals are a little more complex to administer. They're more expensive. They're more targeted. So they may not handle some of the viral evolution as well. And we've seen that and may well serve us in early treatment or for those who can't respond to a vaccine. So I see these as complementary as opposed to antagonistic therapies, and it's unfortunate when it gets looked at that way. We should be looking at our tools in relation to their strengths and how we can deploy them most thoughtfully in our communities. So I have one further question. The FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee has just met to discuss whether to approve the use of BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, for children 5 to 11 years old. The discussion was quite a bit different from earlier discussions in which adults and adolescents were being talked about. Why did the decision seem to be more difficult this time than in the past? This was an interesting meeting, Steve. The actual data appeared 
very similar to those presented in other meetings. Among a few thousand children in a randomized controlled trial, there was a good response to vaccination among the vaccinated group as measured by antibody levels. And in fact, there was clinical evidence that the vaccine protects against disease. There were no real safety concerns among this group of kids, but the concerns were not really around what happened in the study, but around a risk benefit analysis that really was a centerpiece of the discussion. Children are not at particularly high risk of severe disease if they get infected. And while we didn't see it in the study that was presented, there is still substantial concern about myocarditis, which has been seen primarily in adolescent boys and young adult men. And we don't know what the risk will be in this age group, though there were no cases among the relatively small group that had been vaccinated. In the end, the committee was torn. There are many children who could benefit, particularly those who have pre-existing risk factors, but it's not clear right now that it's the right choice for all children. So in the end, the committee voted to recommend approval of the vaccine, but there was some reluctance. There was clear discomfort with the idea of broad use of the vaccine at this point, and particular concern about the possibility of mandated use of vaccines. It's really gonna take a lot more accumulated data to figure out how best to use the vaccine in this population. But I will emphasize that the actual data that were collected are all quite positive. So Eric, these data are encouraging. And initial data, albeit limited, do suggest that this vaccine works well in the younger children, and therefore should provide protection. And as you point out, SARS-CoV-2 behaves differently in children than in adults or senior citizens or those with severe comorbidity. So until we have more data, fully understanding the risk-benefit ratio can't be done. But these initial data are quite encouraging. And the potential benefit is also related to the infection force and the likelihood of exposure and therefore how much protection will be afforded. And these are dynamic processes. So hopefully as more use occurs, assuming the FDA moves forward with EUA for younger children, as more data accrues, we'll have a better understanding of the risk benefit ratio and how it behaves in communities where transmission is higher or lower to better inform our deployment strategies. I think that the considerations here were very similar to the considerations in any age group. There are knowns and there are unknowns. The knowns in all of the age groups is how well does the vaccine protect? And we have a good idea of that from efficacy studies. And even in the kids, even in a relatively small study over a very short time, there were some cases and it appeared to prevent cases of symptomatic COVID. So I put that in the known category. The other known is what kind of common side effects there are. Among a few thousand kids, the side effects were the usual set of local and systemic reactions. And the kids tolerated it pretty well. Almost all of them could get two doses and tolerate them. So those data looked very much like the adolescent data and all of the adult data that came before them. The reluctance in this case is because of two sets of unknowns, and you cited at least one of them. So one of those is the risk that can only be seen over a much larger number of children of myocarditis. That risk is 
more important in this population than it is in the others because the benefit to these kids we know is smaller. They just don't get that sick as often as older age groups. We're trying to save a smaller number of lives or a smaller amount of disability than we are in adult age groups. So that unknown risk becomes more significant. And of course, as you suggested, we don't really understand how well these vaccines are going to prevent transmission, pretty much in any age group, but certainly in children. So that information would help us because it's hard to evaluate the societal benefit of children who are vaccinated. And that becomes perhaps a more important part of the equation if they're not going to benefit so much individually. So essentially the impact on transmission, which is very important, difficult to measure, and certainly difficult to measure in small efficacy studies. I think that's right. Now, I don't want to leave physicians with the message that kids should not be vaccinated. In fact, the risk-benefit analysis that was performed that made rather conservative estimates suggested that the benefit exceeds the risk at those sorts of levels of community transmission going on right now. And as community transmission rises, that benefit will increase. And also, the risk is very, very small. We didn't see any bad effects in the several thousand children who were included in the safety analysis in this. So it's not that people should focus on the risk. It's simply that it doesn't have the sort of importance that it does in adults from what we know right now. But it's also important to emphasize that like everything in COVID, the information is going to change over time. And so what we say today may not hold up in a month's time or a few months' time as more parents elect to vaccinate their children. So Eric, I agree. And I think that there's much for us to learn. The data suggests substantial benefit, but as we learn more, we will better understand how best to vaccinate our children for their health and the community health. And we look forward to these data emerging. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.